0: Beloved, please turn to Exodus chapter 18 this morning as we open God's Word together. Exodus chapter 18, be looking at verses 1 to 27. Good morning. thinking about our church as so we were singing out this morning and the blessing that we have to be here as one body. And I was reflecting on that. And I kind of feel like I can, I can feel myself breathing into this microphone. Is this as hot as it feels? I, like, I feel like I'm hearing my breath in the microphone. <sighs> That's what it feels like. So I don't know. It may just be me, but uh, I, I trust them to work on it back there. They're working hard. Um, but here's what I was thinking about as we were singing together and taking the Lord's Supper together and things like that. I I think that we, and this is just bonus. This isn't the sermon. I think that we um, we tend to think that the church should be unified. Like we we tend to think that should be the default. Um, but if you look at our record as human beings, we should be surprised by unity. We should be surprised when we get along. We should be surprised at the relative infrequency of disputes. And we should be immensely grateful when we find a way to get along as believers. I guess it's really not bonus, it's part of the text today too, but it just wasn't going to lift off with that today, but it just kind of felt right from this standpoint. What an achievement of God's grace that you're all here today singing, praising God, getting ready to listen to a sermon that's been prepared from God's word consecutively through Exodus for you, a timely word in season because of God, not man. Think about what an unusual privilege it is that we would get along well enough to do that. That's substantive. And it's unusual because more often than not, disputes take the day, disagreements divide, and Christ... Is not given the glory that he deserves, that should be seen through eagerly pursuing the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, there are unities not worth having, but the unity of the Spirit is worth having, now, isn't it? And you cannot have a unity of the Spirit without pursuing. professing church membership because you cannot have the Spirit unless you have the Spirit and so if you pursue unity with a bunch of unsaved people whatever you've got you don't have the unity of the Spirit if you pursue the hard work of a professing church along with the hard work of getting along then you are fulfilling Ephesians 4 3 pursuing the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace and I guess really that's an introduction of a sermon. So we'll just let it fly. That'll work. Let's do that. Let's look at our text today on those two parts. Exodus chapter 18, verse 1 to 12, is really about that, that spirit that guides every believer. Every believer is guided by God, God the Spirit. And I guess the second part of our text, really, verses 13 through 27, it really is the pursuit of that unity in spite of ourselves, the pursuit of wise decision making in the midst of many disputes, which really is the default for Israel and the default for us too. So we'll take it today on um, two parts, verses 1 to 12, uh, even day one is how it's described. Verses 1 to 12, we'll look at this, this converting power, this power of of God on man to have our eyes opened and to hear about God's work of deliverance and to rejoice. And we'll look at our second part, verses 13 to 27, where we see the practicalities, the nitty-gritty of figuring out how to do life together downstream from being saved, which is a lot messier than we give credit for. And they're given equal part in this text, so we'll try to do that today. Let's ask again for God's help. Dear Heavenly Father, would you help us to see what you want us to see in this text? Thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. I hear the word of the Lord from Exodus chapter 18, verses 1 to 27. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people. How the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now, Jethro, Moses' father in law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eleazar, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father in law, Came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons, and, and and her two sons with her, excuse me, verse seven, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, And has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Now, verse 13. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of me. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice, I will give you advice, and God be with you. "'You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, "'and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws "'and make know, and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. "'Moreover, look for able men from all the people, "'men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a, hate a bribe, "'and place such men over the people and... "...as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace." So Moses listened. Moses listened to the voice of his father in law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father in law depart. And he went away to his own country. May God bless the reading of his word and administer grace unto all who hear. I hope that you see how intensely practical this text is today, how concerned it is for all of the human life. God is good to you to be so practical, really. And let's take a look now at day one or part one, God's goodness to you in the practical matter of changing you. And just to get ahead of ourselves, for the note-takers, in the second part, we will look at God's goodness to you in the practical matter of changing your life patterns, like how you do life, more like sanctification. But let's talk first about uh, your justification, about your conversion to Christ, about your coming to Christ, about the Spirit regenerating you from the inside and all that comes with the order of salvation. So first, God's goodness to you is practical to change you. That's the first point. We look out there for all the change that needs to take place, but in our text today, God changes an old, well-thought-of, wise man named Jethro in here. Um, It's not Jethro Bodine from the Beverly Hillbillies either. This is 3,500 years ago. Uh, This is Moses' father-in-law. Father-in-law is a refrain in Exodus 18 over and over and over again. You can count them up if you want to. There's a bunch of them. And uh, so as much as this is about covenant, it's about God's covenant with us primarily, it is secondarily about family because God makes it a point to include that refrain over and over in the text. So it has something to do with family. This is a now old father of seven daughters, Exodus tells us earlier. In chapter 2, and one of those daughters, Zipporah, married Moses. And to their union, they at least had these two sons, Gershom and Eleazar. And they're named specifically. These two sons are named to track the journey of Moses, but representatively the journey of the spiritual life, because the first is referred to as a sojourner, or you might say differently, a sufferer. And the second one is referred to as helper. Better times. Help. All my help comes from the Lord. And that really does summarize the Christian life, now doesn't it? You have, on one hand, suffering. And on the other hand, you have salvation. On one hand, you have hardship. And on the other hand, you have help. And we really do need to embrace both of those aspects of the Christian life if we're going to make sense of the Bible as a whole picture. Now, Gershom and Eleazar were the two sons of Moses and Zipporah, and they had been under the care of Moses' father-in-law Jethro probably since the time that there was the incident in Exodus 4 as Moses was going into Egypt to reunite with his brethren and to lead them out, there was a circumcision incident, and likely the children went with uh, Grandpa at that point. So Jethro cannot be a young man. We don't know his exact age, but he cannot be a young man. And I think it's worth pausing and just thinking about his age and thinking about if you think that you, regardless of your age, do you think you're too old to learn a new thing? You know, I know they say that we can't teach an old dog new tricks, right? But you know, God can teach an old dog new tricks, can't he? I mean, if Jethro's mentality was that he had arrived with all things religious, he wouldn't have fallen in love and blessed the one true God, now would he? How much do we need the Word of God ministering to us through our entire lives? And we really need to set aside a category here for Jethro as an older religious he's a priest religious um probably wiser i mean we're going to see his wisdom in this text biological family man that is yet unconverted he doesn't know the lord i wonder if you have a category for that or if you blur those lines between the converted and the unconverted well, he's such a respectable man. Surely he's converted. Not, no, not, not necessarily. No. He took care of my kids. I trust him with my family. I mean, surely he's converted. I don't need to share the gospel with him. I mean, he's sort of got life figured out. You realize afresh today the fallacy of that logic? We are the ones that must share the gospel. People that have life more figured out than us, that are better off than us, that have nicer homes than us, more equity. They have have more life experience. They can provide all these things to you, but do they know the Lord? Have they said, blessed be the name of the Lord with sincerity? Because if they cross the Jordan without knowing the Lord, then they will meet a sinner's hell. Because without Christ, you do not have eternal life. Every sheep must enter through the same gate. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder today, do you know him? I don't mean do you know about him. I mean do you know him? And if you don't, would you know him today? Would you say like a man that was too old to change, that was too religious to change, It's too close to the family to change. Would you say today, like like Grandpa Jethro, would you say, blessed be the name of the Lord. I need a gospel. I've heard and I rejoice in this salvation. I want to walk with my Lord. And in the way that we know Him now, Jesus, Yahweh, our great God, would you walk with Jesus? I wonder if you'd just cry out to Him today and trust Him. I'm not going to ask you to walk an aisle or sign a paper or fill out a card. I just wonder if you just trust Him today. I wonder if this would be a watershed moment where you'd mark time today where you wouldn't be so prideful as to allow the Lord to stand in the way of your otherwise pretty good life going straight to hell. I wonder if you'd trust the Lord today. It may seem so unfair to you that a younger man like myself would plead with you for your salvation, but I tell you this, I'm nothing special. I'm just one beggar trying to help another beggar find bread, as one preacher said. I'm just trying to show you where the bread of life lies. It lies in Jesus Christ, and it doesn't matter if you find it at 8 or 80. You must find it to go be with the Lord when you die. Stop saying people go to be with the Lord when they die if they don't know the Lord. They don't. They only go to be with the Lord when they die if they know the Lord. You say, well, how do they know the Lord? You must tell them. You must go tell them. You must tell them about the Lord. You must plead with them and leave no stone unturned pleading with them that they would receive eternal life through Christ. You must. That's the point of the Christian life in many in many respects is to share the gospel with people. This is why world missions matters. It matters for the same missions for the same reason that missions in your home matters. It's because without receiving the gospel and saying, blessed be the name of the Lord, people will not go to heaven. Now you may not believe that, but the problem with your disbelief is not that God hasn't said it's true. The problem is with your disbelief. No one goes to the Father but through Christ. So let's get about telling people that good news. It's not exclusive in the sense that you can't come in. It's exclusive in the sense that you won't come in. Why don't you come in? That you might be able to say, all I have is Christ, to sing, all I have is Christ. Now, there are many more implications for this first part of the text, but none more important than receiving the gospel of Christ and for converting to Christ, for coming to know the Lord and as much as he's made himself known to his people, at this stage you must drop back and pump for a second and understand that 3,500 years ago they didn't have all these pages of Scripture. Moses was a walking mouthpiece for what Scripture would be. Moses was, was, was telling them the words of God. I mean, you can kind of understand why Moses was going about his business the way he was if you think about it that way the Pentateuch was in process. He would write down the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and it would have some scribal notations from his protege Joshua. But Moses is responsible for writing down God's Word. I mean, what we're studying here for a year, we're looking at in Genesis for a couple years, some of you will remember, is things that God led Moses to write down. 3,500 years ago, 1446 B.C., or thereabout, um, they didn't have the written Scripture. They had the oral tradition. And then they got the written Scripture in God's providence. And, and over about a thousand-year period, we got the Bible, with the exception of, of the New Testament, which came with the life and ministry of Christ and the apostles in the first century. And that's it. That's the Bible. Closed, done, Jesus returning. There's no more to add to it. The Bible self-testifies that way. So now you have this written word that you should pay careful attention to, to be very sure that you should preach from and proclaim the gospel to the people from the word. But they didn't have that. And so here's Moses giving the word to the people. And it's interesting to think, as one commentator said, that we have about a third of the Pentateuch, that is events Exodus 18 and prior. And then about a third of the Pentateuch is Numbers 10 and after. And that's about 40 years, and this is lots of years. But right in the middle, about a third of it, is the events at Mount Sinai, like what we're coming into now in Exodus between 18 and 19. So Exodus 18 really is kind of the end of the first session of, section of Exodus. And I, I know that's a lot of kind of narrative details, but we do need to understand where the text is going. If we're going to have sermons that walk through Exodus, you need to know that. So like 3,500 years ago, Exodus 18, prior to Sinai, we're coming to the foot of Sinai in this text, We've got this text here that we're trying to make sense of about an old man coming to faith and a new people trying to figure out how to live out their faith in unity amidst all their disputes. A little bit more about this first point, though, before we go to that second point, because I think it's worth reflecting on. This sort of family reunion that happens at this mediatorial tent of Moses that's being described in Exodus 18 1 to 12, it gives us just some real practical wisdom for life in and of itself. Think about, like, let like your eyes glance down at the text for just a few moments to see if, if you, if we can see some things together. Verse 7, Moses went to meet his father-in-law and they exchanged greetings together, like greetings of the day, bowed down, kissed one another, and they asked about one another's welfare. <laughs> you know, they went into the tent. I just wondered, just, they asked about one another's welfare. I wonder if you've forgotten the value of the time about asking how one another's doing. You know, what a contribution that is to the unity of the body to ask how one another's doing. Right? And I don't just mean the way the world does. Like, hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm fine. Okay. Good enough. No, no, no. I mean, how are you doing? You see? And then there's that quiver of the lip, you know, that I don't know if I really can do this or not, but I'm really not doing great and I'd like to tell you about it. And then there's the conversation. And that matters. How you doing? I imagine Moses and his father-in-law having sincere greetings. And the text bears out here that he had real reservations about Yahweh being the one true God. But, but look at how it plays out. Look at, uh, at verse 8. Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done, both about the hardship, it says, and the deliverance, both aspects. He, did, he didn't really... Powder-coated. And then in verse 9, we, we have this, what many commentators think is of Jethro's conversion. He rejoiced. Why did he rejoice? Because of the goodness of the Lord. His deliverance. But what else? did he, he rejoiced in the Lord, his goodness and his deliverance, but he also blessed the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gives and he takes away. Still I choose to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. He blessed him for these things, for his deliverance. And then he said in verse 11, he said, Now I know the Lord is greater. I know the Lord is greater, greater than everything else I've trusted in. Because the people were dealt with arrogantly, and the Lord has delivered them. And then verse 12 is fascinating. It's it's kind of a kind of an early introduction to the experience that we had today, right? Where we took bread together. Eat bread with Moses' father in law before God. Well, who, who else is there? It's the other believers. You have all the elders, you have Aaron, you have Moses, you have an offering being given by Jethro this costs him something he sees the value of expressing his newfound faith if we're understanding this rightly so we're wading into this together and so this is a, there's a implications and excitement and worship for this bona fide new convert with some of these folks that are believers had been believers but we want you all to be counted as those that eat the bread, those that take the Lord's Supper together, those that gather together under the administration of the New Covenant. And we want to be the people together that pursue life together, but you cannot pursue a life together unless you're first born again, unless you're first regenerated. So we have to get first things first. And this special time for Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, is recorded here for some good reason in our lives today. For some good reason in our lives today. And I don't know what it is for you. Perhaps it's, it's the good reason for you is, is that suffering is part of the Christian life too and, and, and you, need to, you need to embrace that. Uh, maybe it's your deep need to share true religion with family. That's kind of hard to talk to about such things. Um, holidays are coming. Maybe there's something in there. Uh, maybe it's to see all the nations being blessed. Through the promise that God gave Abraham now being meted out through the mediatorial work of Moses. Maybe it's seeing world missions in this text, like a Genesis 12:3 flavoring showing up here in Exodus 18, because Jethro was from another country. He had to go back. He was a Midianite. And yet he 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 praised God for the even the land promises that were given to Israel. So embracing global missions, maybe. Uh, eating the bread as a church member. Maybe you need to pursue church membership as we head into the holidays and the new year. Maybe it's important that you're, you're officially a part of us and that you're faithful to your covenant and sharing together in this meeting place that God has granted us as his people. So some things to think about. Now, secondly, God's goodness to you is practical not just to change you but to change your patterns, to change how you live your life. The gospel doesn't start it, stop at conversion. The gospel takes, takes you and changes you. It changes your perspectives and changes your behaviors, sometimes slowly. I mean, so some things initially really quickly, but other things, it, it's, it takes some time. But for all of your life, God is at work in your life. And worship, blessed be the name of the Lord, it's one of the catalysts for you as a believer to then grow in the other six days of the week because of our common experience together. There's something that goes on when we're together and and we do check on the welfare of one another. As, as one one kind of seemingly minor thing, we get to know one another. We get acquainted. And the things that bind us together. I mean, the thing that binds us together is not really our common personalities. Not even necessarily our common hobbies. I mean, it just amazes me that we like each other. Aren't you ever? Did you ever just look around and think we're kind of a ragtag group? I mean, I think all churches are if they get honest about it. But I mean, we're we're just sort of like we're, we're sort of like shoestring together all the time. And it's just, it's just like God doesn't he doesn't give us everything that we want. He gives us what we need. I just. You know, I, you, we have this old saying, we talk about it sometimes, a few of us like to talk about sports and, you know, things like that, and you say you, you, you always, you play ball with the people that come to the gym, or you, you play, you play football with people that come to the field, or you, you always work with the people that show up, you don't work with, you don't get to, to work with the people you wish you had, like, that's just, that's that's not it, you work with the people that show up, and so you say, well, I'm glad you like me, Matt. No, that's not what I'm saying. Like, I don't mean it like that because you're probably like, you don't get to work with the pastor you wish you had either. I mean, we're just sort of stuck. I mean, it's like Velcro, you know? I mean, we're just sort of stuck. But we're we're gloriously stuck. I mean, you don't think God has you in a geography for a purpose? <laughs> you know, you don't, don't think He has you at a earning bracket or not for a purpose? You don't think He's... You think, you think despite ourselves, you think God's not got His people where they're going? So I, I just... It's more about obeying and listening to him, listen to his voice, which is now clearly heard through the right study of the scripture. I mean, that, that's where, where we get it. And figuring out for, for, for our lives together, and our lives, obviously, we have individual lives, we have homes to take care of and all that, but, but, but our lives together too. And this second part, I almost am going to have to say more about how intensely practical it is than I'm going to have time to tell you how intensely practical it is. I almost think like verses third, 13 through 27. I almost feel like I'm the hype guy for the practicality of the verses, and then you go forth and learn more than I'm going to just tell you like 20 things. I mean, all books have been written just on 13 to 27. I got an email this week uh, on the Jethro principle in verses 13 to 27. I'm like, Wait, you can make a, tease out a whole 10-week series on verses 13 to 27. I'm not going to do all that. I'm committed to walking through this book, but I'm just we're just going to kind of hype it and get into it and think about how it affects our lives as believers now because God is... He's so good to us in his intense practicality for shaping our life patterns, our normal days, our work days, our every day together. So so here's what the the context is. The people are having disputes, and we have disputes too. Sheep wandered into someone else's space. Arguments emerged over who owned what. Uh, Somebody misspoke. Somebody lashed out. You know, somebody, you you go through the myriad of possible issues. Where there are people, there will be problems, and the existence of problems is not an unusual thing. Understanding God's help to us in normal things, that's where the unusualness starts. And we can see His goodness to us to change our patterns by changing us together. And we really see that within what Moses did right, what Moses did wrong, and how Moses handled this godly counsel. So within this second point, listen for those three things as we've we're exploring our life together, and and what Moses got was getting right, and what he was getting wrong. So let's consider what he was getting right. Look at verses thirteen to sixteen. He's getting some things right. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses morning to evening. Right. And he's not chastised for working all day. That's not where the. That's not. It's good to have a good work ethic. Laziness is is not ever a high valued thing in the bible it's it's something that's sinful and there's something underneath that causes laziness. Moses is a hard worker and that's fine. That's not the part that's not good. God is perfectly good. You'll notice that nomenclature in the first part of our of our chapter where what God does it does is good in verse 9. Now Jethro is going to say, Moses, there's something you're doing that's not good. You're clearly still a sinner, right? And we all are. So Moses sat to judge the people morning to evening. It wasn't that his work was the problem. It's how he was doing his work was the problem. And now that his family is coming in for a landing, he's going to figure out, have to figure out how to balance family as well as ministry, if you want to look at it that way. And he's in the process of writing a Bible down, too, at some point here. So there's a lot going on. So verse 14, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, perhaps freshly converted, a wise old man, saw all that was going on for the people, and he said, and he's, this guy knew the art of the question before any of us knew the art of the question. He knows how to ask good questions, right? So here's what he says in verse 14. What, what, what is it that you're doing for all the people? Like, you know, I mean, instead of, hey, you're really messed up. You know, that's not the right approach. Hey, hey, help me understand, you know, that kind of stuff, right? I mean, that's not just leadership stuff for today. That's stuff that's ancient that we're, we rediscover in every generation. What is it that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit? Here's another question in here. Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? I mean, why is this this sort of monolithic thing, this, these droves of people? It could have been a million, two million people involved. Imagine the number of the disputes. I mean, how many can we conjure up with 100 people? Imagine a million. I mean, there's a lot going on, right? And so they're coming to Moses here as they're sojourning, as they're, as they're moving along from Egypt to their destination. They're at the foot of Mount Sinai uh, or so. I mean, I'm not exactly sure about the timing of these events. And, and here is Jethro now observing the daily practice of his son-in-law as well as all the people, and they're standing around, and this is what Moses' father-in-law has to say, verse 15, because the people, or I'm sorry, what Moses has to say to his father-in-law is what I meant to say, because the people come to me and inquire of me, this is my answer. They come to me to inquire of God. They want to hear from God. I'm, I'm important, you know. <laughs> And when they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. So I'm an arbiter as well. And and I make known to them the statutes of God and his laws. So this is what Moses is doing well. He's administering the word of God to the people. Good. He is willing to work. Good. He's mediating for the people, although probably lacking as much time for that. Good. These are good things. And then look at what Jethro says, though, to him to correct him because it has implications for all of us as well. Verse 17, Moses' father-in-law begins to tell him what he's not doing so well. What you're doing is not good. This is where you're missing it. Verse 18, you and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out. This structure is too heavy for you. You you cannot do this alone the way that you're doing it. Verse 19, now listen to me. Obey my voice. I'm going to give you some advice. And I'm just going to pause right there and just say this part. Like, listen, Pa. (laughs) I, I held the staff up and the C part. Like, I told Pharaoh the plays are going to happen to happen. Like, I'm really glad that you figured out who Yahweh is, but who are you to tell me what to do? Right? Our pride starts to puff up, right? More on that in a minute. But I mean, I just kind of have to, inter- I have to put that in there because I'm going to give you advice. I mean, the, the attitude could be who in the world do you think you are? Like, you're going to give me advice? I'm Moses. Here's what Jethro says. God be with you. You shall represent the people. And boy, do we ever need more time in prayer than we do administration. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. This is sort of like the original Acts 6 of word and prayer. In verse 21, Moreover, here's more of his counsel, okay? You focus on that teaching, you focus on what he's going to call the hard cases, but moreover, you develop other people to do things within the community of believers. Verse 21, look for able men, so they need to be able. Uh, Men who fear God, they need to be God-fearing. They're trustworthy, they'll follow through, they'll actually finish something they start. And, And they hate a bribe, so they can't be bought ability where if you've got a price, eventually that price comes and Satan will use that. So there's four things here. And if you were to look in the New Testament and read the pastoral epistles, you would find um, similar themes, although some different nouns and verbs, but similar themes in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 to describe what's expected of those that would would set an example for us in speech and action as, as uh, pastors and deacons and things like that in the church. And so these things are, are they're ancient, but they're, they're, they're relevant now. And it says then, uh, these people that are recognized as being this way among the people, you recognize them and place them over the people as chiefs, or uh, the context here is, is uh, decision-making and uh, judgment, arbitration, this sort of a thing, influence, helping sift through disputes, and you set them as chiefs. And then he runs through of a specific number of people from thousands down to tens. And it says in verse 22, and let them judge the people at all times. Uh, and there's a dual problem here. I was talking to some brothers that were thinking about this text with me this week in preparation to feed you the word of God today. They said, you know, that God knows our temperaments and whatnot, too. Some people just need something to do. <laughs> like they, they just need to put their hand to something in terms of, of doing something practical uh, to help out in, in what we know as the body of Christ. And I think there's something here, too. There's, as they're settling in, converted people need a job. They need something to do. And, and as another part of that, it's not just that they need something new. They need something specific to do and helpful to do, and they need to be accountable for where they're not one of those four things. So they need to be coached and corrected to get there. So there's a lot of kind of messy, organic discipleship going on as we get into leadership development and family development and all that. And and there's just a lot of room for a lot of misunderstandings there, but nevertheless, it's still the work, and it's good work. And the the results are better if you engage in that work instead of just, you know, just a couple people doing everything, and everybody else is just kind of, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking it and, and look at it, looking at it. And, but, the, but the problem, though, here is not on the people for not doing anything. Like, I want you to see where the accent is put. It's bad leadership. Now, if leadership comes to you and is engaging you and trying to help you develop, and you're, you're bucking up, and you're, who are you to tell me? And, and that, is, that is your problem. But the initial problem is leadership. Like they don't have an understanding, or at least Moses didn't hear, of wise leadership. Apparently, as one said, is a better prophet than he is a, an administrator of a church. Apparently. And so, so it says here in verse 22 let them judge the people. And it says, every great matter they'll bring to you, perhaps more nuanced matters, matters that would pertain to the entire flock, but every, any smaller matter, something maybe for a thousand, all the way down to a ten, let them take care of it at the street level. They should decide for themselves. Now, just pause right there in verse 22 as we're just kind of walking through this, this wisdom. Uh, one, one person, I know this principle from, from older studies, but one person, Jim Hamilton, talked about this in relation to this text this week. I think it's helpful if you want to write the word down. It's subsidiarity. Subsidiarity is the encapsulating word that means it's best in a society if problems are handled with the least number of people necessary in order to handle that problem. It's best. That's called subsidiarity. That has implications for governing. It has implications. Uh, I mean, I'm mean, i interested in this text in relation to the fact midterms of this week. I mean, you should think about your conscience and think about what it means to value subsidiarity. And think about it in the church. Before you go to the church, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to go to a person, after you've not been able to resolve an issue one-on-one, you go... Two on one, or a small group on one, right, so it doesn't just escalate it 's not all the way to Moses immediately, so this is a principle it's an under undercurrent but it's a principle throughout god 's word and and what does it say will be the results if if subsidiarity is understood if if wise leadership is is um, availed to god 's people look at verse twenty two b it's it's going to be easier for you and and they will bear the burden with you. We're going to do this thing together. It is a burden. Disputes are the norm. They're not the exception. Wise decisions are what's unusual. They're going to bear the burden with you. And, and so this gives you a sense of what Moses was doing right, what Moses is doing wrong, and some practical applications there within, I think, if you just kind of meditate on it, on things that we might do right and that we might be doing uh, wrong. I mean, Moses didn't realize it, but in some sense, he was the original title of that book. When helping hurts, I mean, he was actually hurting by the way he was trying to help. Um, and so, together, as it's cliche, but together we can do more than we can do alone. Now, w- w- within our second aspect of this text, our second, our second point, I, I want to say one more thing. There's one more thing that I think is really, really helpful for all of us, and that is uh, verse twenty-four. Moses listened. It's it's almost just tucked there, like like almost you're winding to the end of the text, and so Moses listened. You remember that thing I was talking? I did that little uh, diatribe earlier. Who are you to tell me? I mean, I held my staff up, and I and I and I and I. Moses, and there was a perfect man that once led us, and his name's not Moses, and we'll talk about him before we close. Um, But Moses is not a perfect man, but he was an exemplary man. Numbers 12.3 describes Moses as the most meek man more than all the people that day in his day. He's the most meek man. So, blessed are the meek. They inherit the kingdom of God, right? So, he's humble. He's a meek man. And, and really, you wouldn't imagine Moses being a meek man, now would you? But he is. And how much more so... Should we take a page out of that book and listen to wise counsel from wherever it comes? New converts are not cast away because they're new converts. If, they're wise, if they have the gift of wisdom, they have the gift of wisdom. Organizational leadership is not an explicitly Christian thing, although it certainly is rooted in the truths of Scripture. Moses' meekness is on display. It wasn't flawless at all. I mean, remember, he, he wanted to go it alone with his fists when he was 40, uh, and then he, he got exiled himself from Egypt, and then, and then he didn't want to go it alone at all. He didn't even want to go back to Egypt and do the job, and so he had to have Aaron, which, you know, all that takes place. And, and so, so, I mean, he's, he's not a flawless person, but what he is at this stage in his life is he's humble, and he listens. He's a listener, and he's uh, an old dog that learned a new trick, you know, put it that way. He's, he's someone that could learn something new. And oh, for the want of humility in our wee little flock. You say, I don't think I can do anything with this sermon. You, can you seek meekness? And I don't know what to do with all this kind of top-level administrative stuff. Can, can you be humble? Can you help out? Can you worship? Can you share simple things? profoundly challenging for we sinners. I hope today you'll decide to apply God's goodness to your life in some practical and personal ways based on this text and find deeper peace and community. This text says that peace comes through this sort of thinking and living. When God makes a people, he makes them all the way down, not the surface-level stuff. And he intends to deliver you and to help you with decisions, to convert you, and to provide you with wise counsel, to treat you like family, and help you function in the family. All of the above, both and. Exodus 18 examined just two days in the life of Israel, in the life of the people of God. In the first one, Moses has a family reunion, and his father-in-law is converted. In the second one, he listens humbly to Jethro's advice and reflects the same humility Jethro had to reflect to learn a new trick. He reflects it himself He says, yeah, you're right. We're going to change this. And it's packaged in here that teaches things about missions and church administration together, life. We need them both, conversions and counsel, missions and administration. And God's word is so timeless for us. And we know that to be true, don't we? I mean, earth will pass away, but this book won't. This word's not going anywhere. So we need to get about the business of understanding it, instructing people in it, and living it, promoting the diversity of gifts in our body. Nobody, we're not the same people with the exact same gift. And we also need to get about the business of giving ourselves a little bit of slack when we are not even as meek as Moses. Because here's the reality. Moses was not always weak, meek, even if he was the meekest man on the earth at the time. But there was one man that was perfectly meek, And his name is Jesus. Moses was a mediator, but he wasn't a perfect mediator. Read the Pentateuch, parts 1, 2, and 3. But there is a true and better Moses that has never failed in his mediation, and he never will. Look at Hebrews chapter 12 for this true truth in conclusion today. Here's what Hebrews chapter 12, verses 21 to 24 say. Hear this, the word of the Lord. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion. Contrasting Sinai and Zion. To the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge, perfect judge, unlike us, of all. And to the spirits of the righteous, made perfect. Well, one day we're going to be perfect, aren't we? That's not today. One day we're going to be perfect. At verse 24, Hebrews 12, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Let's take a half a minute and think about what God has shown us in his Word today. Oh God, some of us need your help.